0: Well, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to be this morning looking at uh, verses 27 to 33. But I'm going to read for us from verses 15 all the way to 33 just for the sake of context so mark 11 starting in verse 15 and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your words are words of eternal life. And So we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, as we look to your word now, that, Lord, you would Take your word by the power of your spirit and apply it to our minds and our hearts. That you would convict us, encourage us, strengthen us, bring us to repentance if we need to be brought to repentance. Have your way in our midst here this morning. We pray that Christ would be exalted and that your people would be strengthened. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning we're looking at verses 27 to 33, and we're in the the final stretch of Jesus' final days. During this time, he's traveling back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem, and here we're told that Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. This was shortly after he cleansed the temple, possibly even the next day. So he goes back to the temple, and when he arrives, he's confronted by three different groups the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Three official religious authorities within Israel. Now we need to ask is there any significance to this? Well, remember that when Jesus declared judgment upon Israel in the foreshadowing of the, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, It was upon the nation of Israel, but it was focused towards the religious elite, those who should have known better. And so they come to Jesus in the temple with a question. And we need to ask, before we look at the question, what was the attitude by which they are coming to Jesus with this question? Are they coming as skeptics? Are they coming as seekers or or genuine learners? Or are they coming as defiers? Well, I think verse 18 of chapter 11 gives us the answer. After Jesus cleanses the temple and says that, that this temple is to be a house of prayer, we're told in verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teachings. See, what's driving the the religious leaders now is a desire to undermine and destroy Jesus. They want to undermine his authority. That's what's underlying the question that they're about to ask in verse 28. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now when they say these things... They are of course referring to the cleansing of the temple, but they're also speaking to his miracles and teaching. Remember, at one point in the gospels, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of demons. That is, they declared that Christ's authority came from demonic powers. And here, they want to come again to Jesus Demanding that he reveal the authority by which he does these things. Who gave him this authority? Who gave you this authority to cleanse the temple, Jesus? You see, Jesus had no official authoritative status within Israel. He didn't go through the process to become a religious authority within Israel. And he has the audacity to cleanse the temple? See, what you need to see here is that the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus with their question. Underlying these questions is is whether or not Jesus cleansed the temple by divine authority or human authority. The Jewish leaders are attempting to set a trap to undermine Jesus' authority and to destroy him. As Wynandi states, the Jewish authorities are setting a trap. If by human authority, then Jesus' actions could be condemned, for no man has such authority over God's holy sanctuary, not even the Romans. If he said by divine authority, he could equally be accused of usurping the authority of God and so making himself out to be divine, which could easily be interpreted as a blasphemous act, for again, only God has ultimate authority over his temple so these men are are out to trap Jesus in order to undermine his authority and to destroy him and so what does Jesus do well verse 29 Jesus said to them I will ask you one question answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things was the baptism of John from heaven or from man Answer me. So he responds to their question with a a question of his own. I'll tell you where I get my authority from if you tell me whether or not John's baptism was from heaven, that is from God, or whether it was merely created by man. Now there's two things we need to ask. One, what is Jesus actually attempting to do here? And then two, why does Jesus bring up John and his baptism? So first, what is Jesus attempting to do here? Well, they've attempted to put Jesus into a corner. They've attempted to trap him. And Jesus, with his question, he completely reverses the circumstances. He puts them into a corner and traps them. And you see this based upon the discussion they have amongst themselves in verse 31 to 32. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will then say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. You see, they've been trapped. Jesus has outwitted them. Jesus puts them into a corner, and he gives them a taste of their own medicine so to speak so that's what Jesus does with his question he he actually reverses the circumstances and he traps them but why does he bring up the baptism of john well through bringing up the baptism of john he's going to expose their wicked unbelief and also their fear of man and you see it in their discussion amongst themselves and they discussed it with one another saying If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But we shall say, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. You see, if John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say to us, Why didn't you believe him then? Now I want you to notice something. Jesus asks them about the baptism of John, not the message of John. He asked them about the act that John practiced. And so Jesus is asking them about what John did. But here in verse 31, they're concerned that their response will cause Jesus to ask them about what John said. Why didn't you believe his message? You see, the religious leaders are making a connection between John's baptism and John's message. If John's baptism is from heaven, then his message is from heaven. But they don't want to affirm that. Why? Well, what was John's message? Mark 1, 7-8. And he, that is John, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's message was about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they know that if they affirm John's baptism, then they also have to affirm John's message about Jesus as the anointed Messiah. But they won't, because they hate him. As Wynandi states, To affirm the heavenly origin of John's baptism is to affirm the heavenly authority of his words concerning Jesus. And so to affirm John's past words concerning Jesus would be a self-condemning act for their present lack of faith in Jesus. Or to put it another way, if the Jewish authorities confirmed the heavenly origin of John's baptism and therefore the heavenly nature of his proclamation, they would be implying that Jesus' authority as the divinely anointed Messiah was given to him by God and thus his present acts of cleansing the temple were in keeping with his divine authority. You see, they can't affirm John's baptism was from heaven because if they do, then they're acknowledging his message about Jesus was from heaven. There is an unrelenting refusal to believe in Jesus on the part of the religious leaders. So, there is an unrelenting refusal to believe in Jesus on the part of the religious leaders. And through Jesus' question, he exposes their wicked unbelief but we also see that they're controlled by the fear of man we can't say from heaven because if we do jesus is going to be like why did you reject his message which was about me so that's off the table then what if we say john's baptism was for man well we can't do that because the people really believed that john was a prophet and as mark tells us the reason why they couldn't was because they were afraid of the people you see, Jesus, through his questions, exposes their fear of man and their unrelenting wicked belief. They've been backed into a corner, and they've been exposed for who they really are. Enemies of Christ and his gospel. And so what do the religious leaders do? Well, they plead ignorance. Verse 33. And so they answer Jesus, we do not know. Now, there's a lot of irony here. The religious leaders who believe themselves to be experts in the ways of God plead ignorance. Not because they don't know, but because their hearts are so evil and they're afraid of being exposed for who they really were. So, what does Jesus do? He keeps the agreement verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He said he would tell them the authority by which he does these things. If they answered his question, they didn't answer it. And therefore he didn't answer them. But I think there's something deeper going on in Jesus's response. Him choosing not to reveal where his authority comes from is a form of judgment against the religious leaders as you continue to refuse to believe so i will continue to slowly hide who i am to you you see jesus will always reveal himself to genuine seekers even those who have questions and doubts but to those who intentionally are trying to do everything they can to delegitimize jesus Jesus has no obligation to make himself known. It's not as though Jesus, for the past three years, hasn't provided them evidence over and over again through his miracles and teaching. But all the evidence in the world wouldn't have made a difference for the religious leaders, because their refusal to believe was not a lack of evidence, but a resistance to to his divine authority. And there's a serious warning here for us. To those who continue to walk in wicked unbelief, outright rejection of Jesus, Jesus will slowly but surely hide himself. That's why Isaiah 55, 6-7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So what does this text mean? What's the theological significance for us from this dialogue that Jesus has with the religious leaders? I mean, they they question his authority, Jesus questions them and and shows their unbelief, and then he doesn't answer them, end of story. What's so important about this story? Well, I think there are some very important truths from this story that are alluded to in this passage. The first is this. There is a direct relationship in embracing Christ's messengers, specifically his prophets and apostles, and embracing Christ. There's a direct relationship in embracing Christ's messengers and embracing Christ. The religious leaders rejected the messenger of Christ, John the Baptist, and therefore they rejected Jesus, whom John testified to. Or you could put it the reverse. They rejected the Messiah, and therefore they rejected John the Baptist. You see, if you reject the messengers of Christ, those appointed by God to bear witness to Christ, you will also reject Christ. There's a direct relationship. I think that's what's going on here with Jesus bringing up John. Their rejection of John was the beginning of their rejection of the Messiah. The scriptures allude to this idea over and over again that the witnesses of God, if you reject the witnesses of God, you will reject God himself. John 13 20, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You see that? You see the logic if 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 you receive the messenger that Jesus has sent, you receive Christ. And if you receive Christ, you then receive the one who sent Christ, that is God the Father. Now the logical conclusion of course is if you don't receive the one I send, then you don't receive me. 1st Thessalonians 4 verses 1 to 8, uh, the apostle Paul is instructing the believers there about what it means to live a holy life, and he's addressing specifically in 1 Thessalonians 4, sexual immorality. But he says some things, he ties his instruction to them, to God. Okay, so listen to this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Here it is, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you. And then he adds this. Through the Lord Jesus. You know what instructions we gave you. These instructions came through the Lord Jesus. And then he begins to unpack what those instructions were. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Whoever disregards this, that is, disregards what? His instruction that has come to the Lord. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Paul makes a direct connection between his instruction and God. You disregard Paul's instruction. You disregard not man, but God. Remember, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. In Acts 9, we're told by Jesus that Paul is his chosen, chosen instrument to carry Christ's name to the Gentiles and the children of Israel. And here in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is boldly claiming that his instruction is God's. For to disregard it is to disregard God. You see, God has established witnesses specifically the prophetic witness of the Old Testament prophets and the apostolic witness of the New Testament. And all through the scriptures, the prophets and the apostles claim to speak on behalf of God and bear witness to Christ. And therefore, to reject the witnesses established by God is to reject Christ. Just as the religious leaders rejected John, so they rejected the one whom John bore witness to. Now why is this important? Because there are more and more professing Christians who claim that they can believe in Christ and follow Christ while rejecting those who bore witness to Christ, the prophetic and apostolic witness and the result is they end up embracing a trunk a truncated Christ who suits their every whim it's not all that important whether or not you believe the apostle paul spoke on behalf of jesus yet paul claims that if you disregard his instruction you disregard god paul seems to argue that it is important with what you do with his teaching. Think about it this way. Imagine a king who sends an ambassador to another kingdom to represent him. In other words, the ambassador goes with the authority of the king. And when he arrives in this other kingdom, instead of being welcomed, they reject him and they disregard his words. What have they done? They haven't simply rejected the ambassador and his words. They've rejected the king and his words because the ambassador was given the task from the king to represent the king. And this is the picture that we get in the scriptures when it comes to the prophets and the apostles. Why do you think the early church devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. Because they believed the apostles' teaching was from God. See, there's a direct relationship in embracing Christ's witnesses and embracing Christ. And so hear me this morning. I do not believe that you can be faithful to Jesus Christ if you disregard the prophetic and apostolic witness that Christ himself established. Secondly, the fundamental reason for the religious leader's resistance to Jesus isn't intellectual or a lack of evidence. The fundamental reason is a resistance to divine authority over one's life. The religious leader's objection to Christ wasn't intellectual Fundamentally, it was fundamentally a resistance to his divine authority. Their intellectual hur- hurdles hid the real issue. Their intellectual objections were simply the tip of the iceberg. The real reason they resisted Christ was hidden under the water. They rejected Christ not because of some intellectual roadblock or lack of evidence, but because they refused to place themselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They sought to undermine his authority so that they could justify their refusal to not have to submit to him. You see, I think the religious leaders capture the bent of the human sinful heart. It's a bent towards wanting to free oneself from the authority of Christ. And it manifests itself in numerous ways. We think of, for example, Genesis chapter 3, where where the serpent comes to Adam and Eve to tempt them. And and what is it that the serpent tempts Eve with? In verse 4, he says this to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can free yourself from the moral constraints that God has placed on you. You can actually be the judge and determiner of good and evil. See, the serpent tempted Eve with free yourself from the authority of God. And this same spirit shows up in the Tower of Babel as well. And here's what we need to see about the story of the Tower of Babel. The spirit of the Tower of Babel has been passed down through, throughout history, manifested again and again amongst individuals, kings, nations, dictators, and rulers. In Isaiah 14, 12-14, to 14, there's this, Isaiah 14 is this chapter about this proclamation against the king of Babylon. And, of course, in verses 12 to 14, there's this famous passage that many, of course, subscribe to Satan. And I'm not going to get into whether or not it's actually a reference to Satan, but I think these verses capture the bent of the human heart so well in the same way that it captures the heart of Satan. This is what we read. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That, I believe, is the bent of the human sinful heart. It is the nature of the sinful human condition to attempt to free itself from the boundaries that God has created and placed over us for our good. We want to free ourselves from his authority, his boundaries, because we think that there is freedom when there is only slavery and death, when we attempt to rid ourselves of God's authority which is precisely the predicament of the religious leaders. And so I think a fair question for us to wrestle with as Christians in this modern context is how might we resist the authority of Christ today? See, none of us, like the religious leaders, were face-to-face with Jesus, hearing his audible words and then rejecting his authority. So how does one reject Christ's authority today? Well, I think this goes back to my first point. Today people reject, resist the authority of Christ by rejecting the authority of his word handed down to us by the prophets and apostles. The issue today is with the authority of Christ's word which is about his authority. For example, and, and I use this example not because I want to pick on this specific issue but because this specific issue illustrates my point with great clarity. I have heard and read over and over again by so-called enlightened, professing Christians this specific intellectual argument regarding homosexual practice. The argument goes like this. In regards to the biblical text addressing sexual behavior, specifically sexual activity between people of the same sex, Those texts lack clarity on what they actually mean. We don't know for sure what the apostle meant. Therefore, Jesus, the apostles, and the scriptures probably weren't condemning homosexual committed relationships. I want you to see there, they are arguing from a place of ignorance. And I want you to see what they're doing in that argument. They are claiming the Bible is unclear on the issue of sexual practices, hear this, in order to justify certain sexual behavior. But understand, they're not merely claiming ignorance or a lack of clarity for themselves. They're claiming a lack of clarity for everyone. It's the notion that not only do I not know what the text says, but you can't know either. Which means, to claim that those biblical texts are clear, it then has to be rooted in pride. Because you can't claim to know it. Despite the church believing it for 2,000 years. Do you see the arrogance and pride of such a statement? It comes across as humble. I don't know what the text means. But when they add, therefore, no one can know what the text means, that's the height of human pride. Let's just take me for example, okay? There are things that I read in the scriptures all the time that I don't fully understand or I don't think are clear. Now imagine if I conclude, therefore, Tim Keller can't understand it, D.A. Carson can't understand it, John Calvin can't understand it, and St. Augustine can't understand it. That would be very arrogant on my part. Do you see the absurdity and the arrogance of such a claim? And that intellectual argumentation is being used to resist the authority of Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures. But here's the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue isn't an intellectual one. The intellectual argument is hiding the real issue. The real issue is a refusal to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ over one's sexuality. You see, if you reject the authority of Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures by pleading ignorance Or God's word not being clear in order to justify sinful practices that God has condemned throughout all of the scriptures and which the church has condemned throughout its entire history, you will face the judgment of Christ. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not taking issue with individuals who struggle with certain sexual temptations and sexual brokenness, whether it's same sex or opposite sex. We are all severely broken creatures and our sexuality is broken and we're all in need of grace and forgiveness. My issue is with self-professing Christians who claim to be religious leaders and claim the Bible is not clear on issues of sexuality in order to justify sexual practices that the Bible is actually very clear on. And hear this. When you claim that, that the Bible is not clear, you're not just saying that the Bible is not clear. You are saying that God is not clear. It's an attempt to resist the authority of Christ by claiming that God has not spoken with clarity. That's the fundamental issue. It's not an intellectual problem, but a resistance to the authority of Christ. I think C.S. Lewis's testimony is a a perfect articulation of this reality, this resistance to Christ's authority. He was an atheist who who was an intellectual and had had all the argumentation that one could make for his atheism. But when the tip of the iceberg of his arguments began to crumble, his resistance to the authority of Christ was truly exposed even in his conversion. He says this, You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene, night after night feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. See, friend, if you have not placed yourself under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, understand that your resistance isn't fundamentally intellectual or a lack of evidence. You might have legitimate questions, and and I don't want to downplay that, but understand The fundamental reason you haven't surrendered to Jesus is because your sinful heart is bent towards resisting His Lordship over your life. And this leads to my third point. There is no greater place to be than to place yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ. Here's what you have to see. There's no such thing as those who are under authority and those who aren't. All of us are under authority. And the question is whose or what authority we are under. The scriptures make clear that you're either under the authority of and lordship of Jesus or you're under the authority of sin and Satan. You see, our culture would have you believe that there is freedom and liberty by living according to your desires. But all it is, is actually enslavement to those desires. If one cannot control one's desires, then one is a slave to desire. And this is why the scriptures speak of us being slaves to sin. Sin has authority over our lives, and it will always have authority over our lives until a greater authority overcomes that authority. See, many of us have a negative view of authority because we've seen authority abused often. Whether it's our parents, our our husbands, our pastors, our teachers, our politicians, our bosses... And all of these negative experiences with authority can cause us to look negatively at authority in itself. And we can often project fallen human authority onto God. And so when we see the authority of Jesus or when we hear about submitting to the authority of Jesus, it often creates in us negative feelings rather than than positive ones. But hear me. There is no greater place to be than to place yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ. Under his authority, there is freedom, love, joy, and peace. Jesus never abuses his, his authority. Jesus uses his authority to bring life, joy, and peace To his people. His authority is meant to serve us in seeking that which is truly good, that which is truly beautiful, and that which is truly true. You see, every human authority will fail you in some way. But there's only one authority in all the universe that will not fail you it's the authority of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself and died in the place of those who defied his authority do you really think he's going to abuse his authority do you really believe that it would be a mistake for you to place yourself under his authority and lordship in 2 Samuel 23 3 to 4 we get King David's last words. And he says this about rulers who exercise their authority in righteousness. And I, I know I've read these words before in, in previous sermons. But this is what David says, or really what God has spoken to David, and David then articulates in 2 Samuel 23, 3-4. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, that is, when one exercise exercises authority justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, what is he like? He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sp- sprout from the earth. In other words, when a when one rules justly in the fear of God, when one exercises his authority justly in the fear of God, he brings life, he brings peace, he brings warmth, he brings joy and righteousness. You know who rules and exercises their authority like that? Jesus. There is no greater place to be Than to place yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, the difference between a Christian versus a non Christian is simply acknowledging and submitting to the authority of Christ in every sphere of your life. Will you do that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior, but that he is also the Lord, and he rules with absolute supreme authority, but his authority is good. And I pray that each of us as followers of Christ would be more and more willing to submit our lives under his authority in every sphere of our lives. And for those who may be here this morning, Father, who do not know Christ, we pray that today might be the day in which they truly place themselves under the Lordship and the authority of Christ. He is worthy of their obedience. Do this, Lord, for the sake of Christ's name. We pray. Amen.